Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. We're happy to have Brother Steve Angie with us. We're going to take three days' journey. Thank you, Billy. Good morning. It's a blessing to be here amongst you once again. The only thing that might make it better is if Barbara was with me. And I'm sure you gentlemen can understand that, hopefully, you married gentlemen. I counted a blessing to be amongst you. Barbara and I both do. We appreciate this group and we pray for you. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 30. And hopefully you'll, you noticed when Caesar was reading this morning in Exodus, that phrase in, that he read in verse 18 of Exodus chapter 3, and in verse 3 of Exodus 5, and in verse 27 of Exodus 8, three days journey. Um, and I wonder if you've ever considered the significance of that phrase, Three days journey. Some time back, I began to ponder the question, why three days journey? Why not one or four or six days? And this morning, I would like us to consider together the significance of three days journey. Not only for the children of Israel back at that time that we read of, that Caesar read in, in Exodus, but more importantly, its significance to the church and to the individual believer today. Again, why three days' journey? Well, this phrase is also used in the account of Jacob and his father-in-law Laban. And that portion in Genesis 30 may help us to understand the necessity of Three days' journey. So I'm going to read from verse 25 of Genesis 30. And it came to pass, when Rachel had borne Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own place and to my country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, and let me go. For you know my service which I have done for you. And Laban said to him, Please stay, if I have found favor in your eyes. For I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. Then he said, Name your wages, and I will give it. So Jacob said to him, You know how I have served you, and how your livestock has been with me. For what you had before I came was little, and it has increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming. And now, when shall I also provide for my own house? So he said, What shall I give you? And Jacob said, You shall not give me anything, but you will do this 
If you will do this for this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flocks. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from there all the speckled and spotted sheep and all the brown ones among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and these shall be my wages. So my righteousness will answer for me in time to come when the subject of my wages comes before you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen if it is with me. And Laban said, Oh, that it were according to your word. So he removed that day the male goats that were speckled and spotted, all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had some white in it, and all the brown ones among the lambs, and gave them into the hand of his sons. Then he put three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flock. Bill McDonald commented on this portion, and I quote, Laban took the animals designated for Jacob and gave them to his sons to shepherd, realizing that they would probably reproduce with markings that identified them as belonging to Jacob. Then he entrusted his own animals to Jacob, separated from his own sons by a three-day journey. This made it impossible for the marked animals in the herds tended by Laban's sons to breed with Laban's unmarked animals that were tended by Jacob. Close quote. In other words, three days' journey was enough separation to accomplish Laban's intention to keep his flocks and the flocks of Jacob from intermixing. It was a matter of identification a matter of sanctification. Now you will recall, no doubt, that later the children of Israel were commanded by God to destroy the nations that occupied the land He was giving to them and also not to intermarry with the nations around them. Obviously, it was of great importance to God that His chosen people remain distinct and separate from the other nations. Again, a matter of identification, a matter of sanctification. However, throughout their history, the nation of Israel has basically failed to obey this command of God. Yet, amazingly to this day, the nation of Israel remains distinct. And since 1948, they have occupied their own land once again. And I believe this can only be attributed to a miracle of God. So what relevance does this have to do with us as we're gathered here this morning? Well, does Almighty God not also intend... For the church to be distinct and separate from the world and from the evil world system that surrounds us? 
for the church, it's also a matter of identification, a matter of sanctification. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, it's written, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it's written, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Does the church at large today present itself as a peculiar people, as a holy nation? Of course, the church is made up of individuals. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, what face do we individually show to the world? The church is a living organism made up of many members. Do we as individuals demonstrate that peculiarity, that distinction to which we are called? Or do we not? My question is to the church and to each individual believer, have we taken that three days journey? And are we maintaining our distance from the world today? Or are we actually blending in with the world? If the church has become more and more worldly, it's because individual believers have become more and more worldly. Unfortunately, many are being led down this path by poor teaching, or no real Bible teaching at all, even by false teaching. Why is the world so attractive to so many believers, perhaps even to you and to me? I once heard a gifted speaker speaking at Hiawatha Bible Chapel deliver a message on abundant life. And he reminded those in attendance that there are many things pursuing us. Among others, he used the following verses. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, which says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight... And the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We are being pursued by sin. He also used Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed 
by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We're being pursued by the world. But as believers, we should be pursuing God, not the world. Psalm 42, beginning at verse 1, says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The speaker challenged those in attendance on that day to consider what God intends for us as believers. And he posed the following two questions to those in attendance. The first question was, where are we seeking to have our expectations met? And the second, can we find what God intends for us in the world? At the time this brother spoke these words from that podium, I had been contemplating the subject of today's message for several weeks. So I asked him after that meeting if I could borrow from him because his message, much of it fit very well what I was preparing and thankful to say he consented. So I used him with permission. But think about it. What is so special about what the world has to offer? Why can't we be more like the writer of Psalm 42 all the time? After all, according to Romans 12, it is only our reasonable service. I wonder, has our love for our Savior waned to the point that we really believe we can find satisfaction elsewhere in the world? Hopefully not. But there are those who profess to be true believers who are treading knee-deep or deeper in the ways of the world. And that is clearly unfaithfulness. What good can come of that? What glory for God? In 1 Samuel chapter 12, beginning at verse 20, it's written, Then Samuel said to the people, Do not fear, you have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you His people." Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king." If you study the Old Testament, and we all should, then like me, you probably wonder how the nation of Israel 
could have been so unfaithful in light of all the Lord their deliverer had done for them. Does not the church seem to be following much the same pattern today? And again, who makes up the church? Individual believers. We're the ones making choices. Our constant prayer should be Psalm 143, verse 8. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. And Psalm 25, beginning at verse 4. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Also Psalm 5, verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Make your way straight before my face. And Psalm 27, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a smooth path. Paul's prayer for the Colossian believers was that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Colossians 1.10 And the Lord promised to answer these prayers. In Psalm 32, verse 8, it is written, I will instruct you and teach you in the ways you should go. I will guide you with my eye. And then in Psalm 25, Verse 8 says, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. And verse 12 says, Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. That instruction doesn't come by osmosis. It takes deep digging into God's word every day. We have to be in His Holy Word on a daily basis, digging deeply. Perhaps the reason so many professed believers are indistinguishable from the world is because they are ignorant believers. They either get no teaching, bad teaching, or false teaching, or probably some combination of those three things. And apparently... They don't choose to seek God's truth on their own, even though they have the indwelling Holy Spirit to teach them. I think of Psalm 23, verse 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. God not only teaches us in the way we should walk, He leads us in that way. And I'm quite confident that the way God leads us is not in the way of the world. Because, after all, it's for His righteousness. And the world wants nothing of God's righteousness. In 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, it's written, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, For he has suffered in the flesh, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live 
the rest of his life in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Now, there's a good test for every believer, especially for a new believer. Do our former friends speak evil of us because we don't run with them in the same things anymore? In Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, we read, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. You know, when we stop running in those things with them because we've accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, we probably lose those friends, quote-unquote friends. Or, do those friends really find nothing different about us, and perhaps even speak well of us. The Lord warned in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. All too often, I find myself feeling too comfortable in this world. And it bothers me. I'd say it's a good thing it bothers me. Maybe you deal with that sometimes too, yourself. Because in John 12, verse 25, we read, He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So how attached Are we to this world and to our life in this world? I got to tell you, I think the pandemic made a lot of believers, or at least professed believers, wonder about how attached they are to this life. And probably a good thing. In Psalm 1, verse 1, we read, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. And David wrote in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You see, David's desire was to be in the Lord's presence and to be in constant fellowship with the Lord. He wanted to dwell there, not just visit occasionally. Likewise, Paul wrote in Philippians 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. And then in verse 13, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God 
in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Pardon me. Paul had the same desire that David did. Is this our desire? To be constantly in fellowship with our Lord? Or are we more comfortable just checking in with Him once in a while? Or perhaps we allow ourselves to be choked with the cares and riches and pleasures of this life, as we read in Luke 8, 14. If we do, that isn't three days' journey, brothers and sisters. The prophet Hosea wrote in chapter 6, verse 3, Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. You know the best way to get to know someone really well? Spend a lot of time with them. Spend a lot of time with them if you really want to know them. When we're rummaging around in the world, we aren't seeking those things which are above that's spoken of in Colossians 3.1. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We read similar words earlier in a different portion. It is imperative in our Christian lives that we must proceed with godly determination. We must move forward. We must not stagnate. We must not allow ourselves to be distracted by anything including the ways and the things of this world. And they're doing all they can to distract us. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it is written of our Lord, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Are we steadfast in our Christianity? Do people who know us describe us as serious Christians, as steadfast Christians? Or do we just leave the world for short visits with the Lord? Are we simply interested in Jesus but not fully committed to Him? Well, where are we more comfortable? In the world or with the Lord and with His people? He knows. And the Lord longs to have the deepest possible relationship with each and every one of us. And if our relationship with Him isn't what it should be, that's certainly not His doing, nor is it His desire. Do you remember those prophetic words written of our Lord in Isaiah 50, verse 7, where it says, For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Being in constant fellowship with our Lord will not cause shame, not where it really counts. May the words of Psalm 16, verse 8, be our constant watchword. 
I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. In James 4, verse 14, it's written, Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. So how are we using the vapor the Lord's blessed us with? At this very moment, if we knew we only had a few hours to live, would we have many regrets about how we have lived? Because that tells a lot about how we've been using this vapor. Psalm 90, verse 17, it's written, And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Will we allow the Lord to write the story of our life? Will we let Him use our lives for His glory? Or do we seek our own glory? That's the message of the world. The message of the world is, it's all about you. The message of the Bible is, It's all about Him. So, which message are we buying? Which message are we living? What's the evidence of our lives? In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, pardon me, it's written, Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren. In Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 9, it's written, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the, fir- with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The things of the world are not excellent. Why go there? Why do that? Why experience the ripple effect of bad choices. You see, what we really want, love, and think about are made evident by the choices we make. And our choices always affect others, always. Whether we want to believe that or not, it's true. Our choices always affect others. A heart fully committed to Jesus Christ tends to make good choices. And guess what? Good choices have a ripple effect also. So it's okay to make waves if their impact is good and righteous. So, purpose to live a Christ-honoring life. In Job 24, verse 13, it's written, 
there are those who rebel against the light. They do not know its ways, nor abide in its paths. And think also of what the Lord Jesus Christ himself said in Matthew 7, verse 6. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. The Greek word for imitate, pardon me, is mimic. Do we mimic Christ or do we mimic the ways of the world? Well, those who know us best know who and what we mimic. 2 Corinthians 3:17 it's written now the lord is the spirit and where the lord where the spirit of the lord is there is liberty but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the spirit of the lord so who do you and i look like when the world looks at us John chapter 15 is where we really should be living. And I urge you to read those words this afternoon. We can't do it now. We don't have time. But they're the very words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to all who truly believe in Him. And they speak of abiding in Him. Well, there's another verse. I know there's more than one, but another verse where the word abide is used. And we find it in 1 John 2, 28. Which says, and now little children abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So what is our practice? Do we practice righteousness? I like what Brother John Marchbanks wrote, and I quote, To be living in the constant expectation of his return. To remember that it is a daily possibility. Will serve to mold the Christian's character and service to the end. Again, Psalm 23.3. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So is our first and foremost concern about the reputation of God in this world? Or are we more concerned about what people think of us, about our own reputations? As Christians, we shine brightest not when others see us, but when they see the imprint of our Lord upon us. Our three days journey from the world must not only be a daily choice, but it must be a moment-by-moment choice. Because sin and the ways of the world are just waiting to invade our lives at the very moment we let our armor down. Brothers and sisters, let's maintain our distance from the world. Remember, three days journey. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 
time in your word, your holy, your precious word, Father. We recognize the attractions of the world, Father. The distractions of the world also, Father, to believers. And Father, while we recognize that we are to take the good news of the gospel to the world, we are not to be like the world. We are to be set apart, to be sanctified. There must be a distinction. The imprint of the Lord must be on us, Father. Otherwise, there's nothing attractive about us to the world. Father, we thank you for the work that you're doing in hearts and lives. I thank you for this assembly. I thank you for this time together and ask that you would bless us as we anticipate going back out into that world, Father, and speaking the truth in love, spreading the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.